Good morning and welcome to Grace. I am Pastor Ryan. Today's a longer message, but it's a necessary one to focus our time and attention on. Of all the various metrics and categories that reveal the disparity between a faithful or a fair-weather follower of Jesus, it is their own internal perception of belonging. Do they believe that the Christian community is necessary? Is that community their community? And is it worth fighting for? Thanks for listening today as we once more look at observations from the book of 3 John to help identify those characteristics that define a resilient disciple. Well, I was reminded very recently of uh, a unique characteristic of cooking uh, on a grill with Kingsford charcoal briquettes. Ooh, have you... If you were at the party uh, yesterday, thank you for everybody who came. What a wonderful time we had. But isn't that smoke? Doesn't that smoke just do something to like your, uh, uh, what, what I want to say here? Your youper, yeah, youperness, right? That we're here, it's summertime and, and getting outside. What I discovered is that if, uh, if, you're, if you're pouring the briquettes in and, and one or two fall off to the side, uh, that those that are not connected to the to the main heap as you're starting with lighter fluid and it's getting heat going, that those that aren't connected to the center, they actually, they go out. Those coals that are farthest from the rest of the coals, uh, they get cold and eventually whew, they snuff out. An amazing thing. This is going to blow your minds. You can take those coals, put them back in the middle, and you know what happens? They start up again. You and I live in a world that has an idolatry towards individualism. Uh, In our world today, we have never been so accessible. Right? I mean, anyone could call you anytime. They could catch you anywhere. They could find out whatever updates with new haircuts. Doesn't matter what it is. I mean, you and I have accessibility with one another that the world has never seen, and yet somehow we have never been so disconnected from people. It's a paradox that social media or social networks are actually not social. And the way that people would treat one another online with faceless communication will cause people to say things they would never say if they were sitting face to face with somebody. In the church as well, we have been affected by this culture and this world around us. In fact, there is a a poll recently that said almost one-third of Christians believe that discipleship is something they can do on their own. (laughs) I'd rather not have anybody else involved in my life. Spirituality is a private matter, don't you know? And we'd rather just kind of go at it ourselves, and I think... Maybe if you're honest this morning, you could even realize there's times in your life where, yeah, things start to get a little hard. Trials make their way in. And it kind of feels like that fire, that heat, that love of God can grow cold. There's an answer, though. There's a solution. You are not made for isolation. Do you know that? You are not created for individualism. You were made for relationship. You were created for community. Now, the church has also been complicit in the way the world and our culture has treated, because one of the things that you'll find is that if 
if you stick around in community long enough, you'll find you don't like people. Any, anyone, any uh, honest people in church today? Right? <clears throat> if you hang out with relationships of other sinners long enough, you'll soon discover I'd rather be alone. And um, there, there comes a kind of a Cinderella period in church. You guys know what I mean by that? Um, it's true with ministers. I, we, we've talked about this in my undergraduate and at the seminary level that when you start at a church, there's a time where folks, oh, the new preacher, right? And then that new preacher, right? And you you, you kind of, the, the glass slippers don't fit anymore after a while. Um, it's not only true of ministry leadership. It's also true of being part of the body. I promise you, you will have moments where those people who are closest to you will say or do something that will offend you in a way that will make you want to, like a coal that falls out from the middle, just distance yourself away from the rest. It could be a a ministry decision. It could be as simple as a, a look at the door when you're walking in. I have been able to receive all kinds of concerns from folks at various churches. So I know the multifaceted way in which we are so fragile as people. Here's the way in which the church, unfortunately, has become complicit in individualism. If you get tired of this church, do you know what you do? You just go find another one. Um, Our authors here in the book, David Kinman and Mark Matlock, they have a quote here I wanted to share with you, kind of in the subject that we're looking at today, saying creating meaningful relationships within the church can't be simply about encouragement and positivity. Meaningful relationships often arise out of difficult disagreements along our journey together. Part of being vulnerable is sticking around long enough to work them out. I, I would relate this most directly to how we are most familiar with a family. Have you ever had an argument with someone in the family? No. And, and thankfully, they're family. So you have to stick around occasionally. And maybe you've witnessed this in your life, that things get so bad that siblings no longer talk with one another and uh, children no longer talk to parents. And, and that's so sad. That's such a heartbreak wherever we see that happen. But if the church as well is supposed to be a family, it's, it's a responsibility that we owe to one another to stick around. I promise you, you're going to have moments where life's hard. But God made you for that because he's working on each and every one of us through those rough edges that we might have to have us see that we too are being grown and tested in our relationships with each other. Now, the place for our focus on this today is working to be careful because this consumer mentality of church, the idea that you can come and you can go, um, it has for us operated without a proper sense of relational investment. There's a word for this, all right? It's the word, ready? Commitment. It's the word commitment. And commitment takes work. Anybody who's married knows that that's true, right? You're going to have those beautiful, wonderful, easy days, and then you're going to have those days where you say, good thing I made a vow in front of God. (laughs) (laughs) I'm walking on thin ice right now. I know. I know. I say (laughs) No. no. Okay. That mentality, that consumer mentality, it's also of the kind that keeps us from pursuing relational investment in the next generation as they're growing up. And so what I want to do as we just start things off this morning 
is to really take a, take a step back, give an evaluation to the world around us, how that affects us, is affecting us, and has affected you and I. But then to look at it for, this, for the primary place of repair. To say that as much as I'm on board to say, yep, I believe it. We need better relational investment with one another. We also need it to that youngest generation. If they do not find that they are welcome in church, I promise you as soon as they get old enough to drive, they're not going to come back. Now you and I as adults, right, we might work it through, Lord willing, have mercy on us. Or, boy, worst case scenario, we go find another church. But that youngest generation... They have not yet seen and heard and felt that call of responsibility to stick with it with one another. And because we are not relationally invested in them, they are leaving the church in droves. And so that's really the subject of, of what we're going to look at today. I want to, um, if, if you're a visitor here, I want to sh- kind of give you some bearings for where we're at. We're looking at four different types of folks in our world today. Three of these would call themselves Christians uh, the, the one on the far end uh, with the big X are ex-Christians. So they used to be Christians. They don't call themselves believers anymore. The Christmas and Easter folks are only those who would say, oh, I'm a Christian, but they're really a cultural Christian. Uh, their behavior does not follow after and in line with the teachings of Christ. Um, and their thought patterns also don't look that way. They feel no responsibility to the church other than it's another social gathering that you could go to if you want or not. The third category here are people who regularly come to church, but only as spectators. They're the folks that, um, and find, I, I'm really grateful actually where we worship here in Segola. It's a lot harder for you to just come in fly under the radar and leave. Hopefully, you, we're a little bit like Velcro here. Hopefully, somebody catches you and just gives you a great big hug. And, uh, and that's, that's wonderful. That's a real blessing to have in a church our size. But think of the large churches in our country. Churches in the thousands. And how easy do you suppose that is to just come in and leave? Have you ever felt like that? I felt like that some Sundays where I just want to come in and leave. I don't want to smile. I don't want to talk to anybody. Well, that's not you. But there are people who are just habitual attenders of church. It's really this last category that we want to focus on. What makes a disciple resilient? The kind who's willing to fight for you. The kind when the relationship starts to dissolve says, no, you know what? I'm in it with you, even though we're having a hard time. What are those characteristics that define that type of Christian? And how can we, excuse me, how can we learn to instill those characteristics in that most impressionable generation. As point of review, here's where we've been. Um, we're going to have five Sundays in May, so five primary ideas, ways to do that. The first has to do with identity. So number one, you have to know that Jesus is real to you. If Jesus is just a fictional character in a dusty book, uh, you are likely not to be resilient in your discipleship. Number two is conformity towards the word of God. That you actually have a hunger for God's word and that you see that it has a role of equipping in your life. It is the authority that God has given us where we find truth. And so if you don't find yourself being conformed onto the likeness of Christ, what likeness do you suppose you'll be conformed by? Everybody's being conformed. Everybody is. It's a, you're fooling yourself if you don't think you are. So it's either a, towards Christ or it's away from Christ. 
And then for today, it's going to be the subject of community that I've entitled uh, Recovering the Family of Faith. And I mentioned it earlier as to how we tradition, uh, we traditionally practice um, calling upon the congregation during baptism to say, I pledge to be invested in this young person's life. And that's the challenge that we're going to look at today. We're going to look at it from the book of 3 John. If you have your Bibles, I'd like to ask you to turn there with me. And as you do, uh, just to let you know, we're going to be looking at a few observations today. There's a lot of data to talk through. Um, but I want you to watch for right in the middle. Um, if you have a wife like mine or a, a, a spouse who is more... Um, far better at wrapping presents than you are. I'm terrible at it. I'm afraid my son might have inherited that. I got a present from him yesterday that looked like that. Sorry. He gets that from me, though. So, yeah. Um, one thing that Emily does is she'll take a bow. She'll wrap it around and then take a, if you know how to do this, you can take the back end of a scissors and you can go zip on the bow and it curls it all up. I'm a little off topic now, but you, you, you guys know what I'm talking about with this. Here's my point telling you this. In the middle of the message today, there's a bow. And if you miss it, you're going to really miss the um, justification for why we're able to obey God's word. Because this bow is going to hold everything together. So I want you to watch for that. As we study 3 John this morning, and I'm going to highlight it for you, but I really want us to pay attention to this centerpiece. That's going to unite everything together. So uh, third, John, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me there and um, I will read. Please follow along with me, uh, starting in verse one. The elder to my dear friend, Gaius, whom I love in the truth, dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. It gave me great joy to have some brothers come and tell me of your faithfulness to the truth and how you continue to walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Dear friend, you are faithful in what you are doing for the brothers. Even though they're strangers to you, they have told the church of your love. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God, for it was for the sake of the name that they were sent out, receiving no help from the pagans, We ought therefore show hospitality to such men so that we may work together for the truth. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will have nothing to do with us. So if I come, I will call attention to what he is doing, gossiping maliciously about us. Not satisfied with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. Demetrius is well spoken of by everyone and even by the truth itself. We also speak well of him. And you know that our testimony is true. I have have much more to write you but I do not want to do so with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace to you. The friends here send their greetings. Greet the friends there by name. All right. Uh, Do you know, shortest book in the New Testament. 
right here. If you're counting verses, you might say, well, isn't it a little longer than the other one? Well, if you read in Greek, there's actually less words in this little book than any other book that we have. So I want to um, appreciate, uh, give thanks for your attention as we read through it every week. One of, my, one of my hopes is that as we leave May, we all just have a greater appreciation and understanding for this tiny little book and how it relates for the spirits, including it in our canon, to speak to our lives and how we need to understand our role within the church. A few observations as we seek to understand what's happening here in 3 John. Uh, The first in relation to a a disciple is that a disciple loves others. In fact, I'm going to put the first three up here all together. Number two, a disciple prays for others. Number three, a disciple is invested in what's happening to others. What's the object of every one of those observations? It's not you, it's... Others, yeah. Let, let, let me just draw you back to the text so that you can see where these observations come from. In verses 1 and 2, you will see that as John writes to his dear friend, he says that he loves him. Um, I think as I, when I was younger, like it's not cool in high school to say you, you love people. So I kind of grew up, you don't, you don't sort of say that, but... You know, as soon as you mature a little bit more, you realize that four-letter word means so much. Uh, you want to be careful with it. You, you don't want to say it flippantly. If you tell someone you love them, that means that you're committed. You're committed to them. But I have found that what a great blessing that actually is in my life as I have opportunity to meet with great friends of mine just to tell them as we're leaving, hey, man, I love you. Um, I, think, I think we would all really do well to think of the importance of that little word. A disciple is characterized by having a love for others. That's what John is doing for Gaius. Secondly, he, a disciple prays for others, right? Another put your money where your mouth is. Type of, can't just say you love me and not actually be invested in my life and willing to pray for me. So if you're looking at in verse 2, we, we have, dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health. So John here is in prayer for the church that's meeting, this network of churches in Ephesus that Gaius oversees, and for Gaius himself, because a disciple prays for others. How are you doing with that? I mean, we could take just a moment of application there as well. I think probably every one of us, to some degree or another, has some work to do with prayer. Uh, There was a song I was listening to on my drive in to church this morning, and it was saying something to the effect of, Lord, I call out to you in trial and pain. But I should probably speak to you more often. Is that true in your life? When life is hard, we pray a lot more. I think of any relationship, anybody who you love. Do they like to hear from you only when you need something from them? Bloop, 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 bloop. Hey, Bob and CJ, I just need, need a little favor from you. <laughs> Next week. Oh, went to voicemail. Hmm. Imagine if that's all we ever did in our personal relationships. Of course, you would find that they would wane. Do you know the same is true with God? He longs to hear from you. And what a privilege it is to pray on the behalf of others and bring those needs before God. Because a disciple is characterized by love. A disciple is characterized as one who prays. And a disciple is characterized as somebody who's invested in what's going on in their lives. In fact, we have a verse here that's unique in the New Testament. Um, There are those who wrongly 
have twisted the gospel to teach a kind of prosperity. Are you familiar with this? Have you heard this, that God's only desire for your life is to make you healthy and wealthy, and that's all God ever wants? They take this little verse right here. They rip it out of its historical context, and they say, see, what, it, what does God really want for you? Look at verse 2. I pray that you may enjoy what? Oh, there it is. See, God must want everyone to be healthy. Time out here. You, you need to understand, this is a kind of a form letter. This is the appropriate beginning to, be, to start your letter with a salutation, asking that things would go well, that you'd have good health. But it, it does more than that. Look at how it concludes. That it may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along. Do you think John knew Gaius? Absolutely. He was, he was a kind of father figure for Gaius. Someone that he could look up to. And so John knows. John knows what's going on in Gaius' life. And not only does he know, he actually has a care and an investment. And we can see that just jumping off the page as he knows it's going along with your soul. I know. There's so much written between the lines here. Imagine the stories that could be told of those nights where Gaius is in prayer with John over the sake of the church, these little churches that are meeting and seeking to be lights in a very dark period of Christian history. John knows what's going on. And so here, don't, don't let these few little observations just run past us without paying attention. Because to be a disciple, one who's resilient, is somebody who cares enough to love, to pray, and to be invested in what's going on in your life. The writers of our book here asked a couple of questions of the public. And one I want to start with here is they asked the question, do you feel loved and valued? And across the board here for these four types of individuals, the ex-Christians, about 23%, think they feel loved and valued. Just the Christmas and Easter folks, not, not much more. Not, not doing a lot better off going to church here. Uh, about one out of every two for the people who regularly go, go to church. But interesting how high it ends up being for those who are disciples in the church. That when they are asked the question, do you feel loved and valued? They do because they belong in the church. That's the next question too. They ask the question, uh, is the church a place where you feel like you belong? Um, and, and here are the stats here. What, what I really want to show you is the drastic difference between those. I mean, if you only had this data at your fingertips, don't you think you could be able to identify one of the most important factors for someone to stick it out when life gets hard? Is that they feel like they belong? I feel like I'm part of the family. Look down the, how, how, how it just drops off like a cliff. For the people who are done with church. Why is that? Boy, they just don't feel like they belong. There's some beautiful passages in the New Testament. This out of Philippians, as, as Paul is recording how the church in Philippi sent Epaphroditus. Uh, listen to what he says. He says, but I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you. And he's distressed because you heard that he was ill. So Epaphroditus goes on this missionary journey. Paul is in prison. The church in Philippi says, Do you all hear? They locked up our apostle. Let's get a care package together. Who wants to go? And who raises their hand? Epaphroditus raises his hand. So he goes out on behalf of the church. And along the way, he gets sick. And the church back in Philippi hears of it. 
Do you see the care? Do you see the investment that's going on within the body of Christ? Really early on, these are all our forefathers in the faith. Or this passage in Galatians, as the church in Galatia is very confused, they are being tricked. Paul says, my dear children, for whom I'm again in the pains of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you. How I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I'm perplexed by you. Doesn't that sound like a parent who loves? Doesn't that sound like somebody who's going to be praying for you? Doesn't doesn't that sound like somebody who's invested in your life? Now, if if you've run across kids and other families, you know, and you see them going hayward in the wrong way, I mean, sometimes the thought is, good thing that ain't my kid. I got somebody else's problem. But one thing you never say in those situations is that I'm in the pains of childbirth for you unless they're part of your family, unless they belong in your household. Well, think again of the church, right? As the family of God, as the household of God, we have to be characterized as disciples who love, who pray, and who care about one another. All right, number four. And this one is a, this is, this is probably the biggest one here. A disciple cares about intergenerational commitment. That's a big word, intergenerational. As commentators have looked at this tiny little book in 3 John, it starts with a peculiar word. If, if you look in verse 1, hopefully you have the title, the elder. Does everybody see that? The elder? Traditionally, uh, this phrase means somebody who, is Phil here? He ain't here. Somebody who's like Phil. I mean old. Not 12 or 13 years ago. (laughs) Traditionally, the word elder was referencing age. Now, in the church, Paul and um, and the leading uh, from from the apostles and Jesus Christ has identified there to be a particular office in the church that's also titled elder. But John is well advanced in his years beyond Gaius. And we have another individual in our text. We're not going to talk too much about him today, but if you look with me um, down in verse 12, Demetrius is another name. Here's likely what was happening. Demetrius was perhaps the person carrying this letter, just like that guy we talked about a minute ago, Epaphroditus. Now, if you were going to send somebody out on a long journey to go and deliver the letter, let me ask you this. Are you going to pick the older fellas, older ladies, or the younger ones? This is not a trick question, guys. We we all know you're going to pick the younger ones. It's very likely that you have three generations represented in this tiny little letter. John as the elder. Gaius, who is probably more wealthy. They're meeting in his home. He perhaps is a businessman. And then Demetrius, who's got a little bit more youthful strength in him to be the one to carry the letter and go on. Here's the point. At every level, do you know what you find? Intentional interconnectedness that goes between the generations. Um, there was this question that was asked of uh, the folks. Um, I feel valued by people in my life who are older than me. Now, I loved my grandparents growing up, but I can remember my grandpa did not like it when the kids were too rowdy. He would say, kids are better seen. and Oh, you know my grandpa. You, you know. Yeah. 
So it's easy to feel like, you know, I'm really not welcome here. I guess I, I, I don't really belong here because there are those standards that say I am not willing to accept the behavior or the, the attitudes of those who are younger. How do they answer this question? Well, across the board, not good. If you are not regularly in church, you find on a factor of almost double, or I should say half, that you have somebody in your life who's older than you that you feel valued by. Now, I don't even think this number is as high as it should be, uh, but do you see the disparity once more? I want you to see how throughout the New Testament we have wonderful examples of that generational from top down, looking as a parent to a child, grandparents to children. This from the book of 1 Thessalonians. Paul says to the church, just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of our Lord, but our lives as well. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Or these passages, which are many, and I don't even have to cherry pick these, right? First Timothy, Paul says to Timothy, my true son in the faith. The book of Titus, he says, to my true son in the common faith. And even here in Peter, at the very end of it, as he's recounting to the church, uh, the greetings, he says, um, she who's in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends her greetings, and so does who? He totally could have just said, so does Mark. But what does he put in there? My son, Mark. I want to uh, share with you a testimony of my own life. Uh, I grew up going to a church over on Carpenter Avenue. And I was one of these rowdy kids. <laughs> um, okay, I, I like to tell you stories. Uh, but I remember, I remember particularly the patience of one of my fourth grade Sunday school teachers, uh, uh, his name was Tom, but I called him Uncle, uh, because that, that was as, as much invested in, his, in my life as he was. He became like, like a family member. Uncle Gursky. It's, it's Tom Gursky right here. And, um, and it wasn't just on a Sunday morning. Uh, I, I remember Tom's voice shouting loud at basketball games. I remember him checking in with me as I would see him. Hey, how'd you do, sport? How'd you do, champ? He always had one of those little nicknames that just made me feel loved. I remember him being the one that would be the loudest cheering voice when I was learning how to shoot a bow, and I wasn't too good, but uh, he, he would make me think I was. Not only for me, but also in my sister's life. Do you know when I first came to this church, I didn't know anybody, but I knew the Gerskis. And that made me feel like I belonged. One life one intergenerational investment that meant the world to me that maybe he would never know when he was doing it. Actually, I was talking to Debbie just yesterday and she was saying how one time she got put on the list for the ladies to teach Sunday school and then the other ones left and she was the only one teaching Sunday school. Somehow, it all fell to Debbie. And, uh, and she, she, re, she was re, re telling us how, how the kids were a little bit rowdy too and she was a little strict and stern and felt like this is not functionally working the way Sunday school is supposed to work. But then it was years later, she said one of those students uh, was telling a story where she said the most meaningful relationship that she had was developed in Sunday school. And Debbie said, I would have never known it. (laughs) 
<laughs> would have never known it. But here she was planting seeds, investing her life intergenerationally in the lives of young people. And those seeds were growing over time to produce fruit. Guys, this is important. This is an important moment for us. If these kids today are going to give the same stories for maybe some who one day will also be leaders within a church, they will think back to the faces that I'm looking at right now. They will remember the love, the nicknames that you call them, the way that you pull them aside on a Sunday morning and say, hey, how are you doing? Are you, you treating your, your, your mom right? Are you, uh, are you helping out your pa? They're going to remember those moments. This is incredibly important. Just one other verse as you're looking at with me in 3 John. Again, in verse 4, John says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. How did John view the churches under Gaius' help? Family. Intergenerational commitment and relationships. Number five, a disciple writes to encourage others. If you look with me in the text, let's, let's pay attention here down to verse 13. T- today we're looking at verses 1 and 2 and verse 13 and 14. The beginning of the letter and the end of the letter. So verse 13, he says, I have much more to write. Well, the whole reason he wrote at all was to want to bring encouragement to Gaius. If you're paying attention to the letter, he says a whole portion of it, starting in verse 5 through verse 8. You are doing good. I'm getting a good report. And then he knows there's some mischief going on in those churches. Ah, Diotrephes. Keep hearing about that, dude. We got to deal with that guy. Hang in there. Don't imitate evil. Imitate good. You, You see what I'm saying? Like he's writing a letter for the purpose of encouraging. Uh, This question was asked, um, is there someone in my life who encourages me to grow spiritually? And um, again, very, very low numbers for those who really don't care much about church. But what about those who are coming? Yeah. One of the key aspects to see that you stick around in church is that you know there's somebody on on my sidelines. There's somebody cheering if you've ever been in a race, anybody ever race track, high school? Any, am I the only one here, right, that, that used to have to run, run? Well, I'll just tell you, one of the things that could keep you going is when you started hearing the cheering on the sideline because the races that I ran, the two-mile, let me just tell you about that, two-mile, something else. Um, you need a little bit of encouragement to keep going. How about life? The troubles of life. Boy, we could use some encouragement. A disciple focuses on encouraging others. We see this true in other places. 1 Peter chapter 5. Look what Peter says. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a... Look at that. There you have family again, right? As a brother. I have written, just briefly, to encourage you. And testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Stand fast. Don't give up. This passage of the book of Hebrews. Brothers and sisters, I urge you, bear with my word of... And this is a great Greek word exhortation. So do you know that sometimes encouragement looks two different ways? We characterize it as a carrot and a stick. Come on, do you ever have a mother or father in your life that gave you some loving encouragement? Anybody? Yeah. Sometimes we need a little kick in the pants. Sometimes we need a little confrontation, tough love. And you only really do that for people that you're invested in, that you care about. So one of the characteristics of a disciple here is somebody who writes. I got this letter in the mail the other day. 
Um, and just, just look at the, the inside of it. I, I've got a folder uh, in my office where every now and then, and it's Phil, it's, it's, it's a full folder. Every now and then I'll get a letter from somebody uh, whose life I've had the privilege of impacting. And, and they've taken the time to give me this treasure. This is a treasure in my life. Anybody here who's ever been in ministry, in, in leadership, you know it can get very lonely. You know it can get very discouraging. Boy, it's encouraging to get a little note sometimes. I've got this one that I've held on to for, for quite a while. This is, this is a homemade one from uh, a nine-year-old in our church. And uh, just a little letter here talking about how they were learning and they were excited. And do you know where this letter is? It's in the same folder that this letter is in. I know there's folks in your life that need encouragement. There's leaders in our church who serve weekly who could use some encouragement. A disciple writes to encourage others. But not only that, let's look at the next one. A disciple doesn't only write. They seek to mentor in person. And I want to draw your attention back to our text once more. Because as he says in verse 13, I have much more to write. He says, I don't want to do so with pen and ink. There's a lot more I really want to tell you. There's a lot more I want to say. But it's not the kind of thing that can just be written down in a note. He says, I hope to see you soon. And we will talk face to face. Oh boy, you guys. We need a lot of work here. Our world today. uh, I mean, don't even text me. Just send a little emoji. That's all I want. Right? But certainly don't call me. Your phone starts ringing, and what do you say? What's this person, born in the 90s? <laughs> Why don't you send me a text, right? Or, or an email? I, I want you to know that, that you, we lack so much communication, that we are blessed by the interaction that we have from one another face to face. You still need to text people. You still need to write them. You still need to email. But it's so much better if you can give a hug. I had a friend here at church... Um, uh, pray for me yesterday and just almost welling up in tears to hear somebody pray for me out loud meant so much to me. It wasn't, it could have been written in a card, could have been sent in a, a weird form of emoji with prayer hands, prayer hands, right? But face to face, it meant so much more. Uh, check this out. When they asked the question, I have someone in my life other than family who I can go to. For advice on personal issues, um, we actually have pretty high marks across the board there. But once again, we see that in the church, it's even higher. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says, I long to see you as he writes to the church so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Why? Through a letter? Through an email? No, because we get to be with each other. This in First Thessalonians, uh, we sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in God's service, to spread the gospel of Christ. Why? To strengthen and encourage you. We just write you a note. We sent Tim. And Tim is going to go there face to face and encourage you. We got the same idea here in the book of Second Corinthians. Paul says, but God comforted the downcast. He comforted us by the coming of Titus. So that we see the importance of being willing to uh, mentor in person. This was uh, two weeks ago. I was going through a particularly difficult decision I was going to have to make. It wasn't, it wasn't dealing with our church, but it was dealing with ministry uh, more broadly. 
And I just started to think, who could I call? And there is a pastor who I've worked with before in the Bahamas. And I thought, this is the guy I need to call. And right here, I I talked for about 40 minutes and I just walked back and forth up and down the aisle, just knowing that I had someone in my life who I had been mentored by face to face, who when I was in a kind of a tough spot, what, what was the number on my speed dial? Yeah, that other pastor that I knew that I could call. I hope you've got somebody like that in your life. And if you're going to be a resilient disciple, you need to have that. Lastly is this, a disciple knows your name. If you look at the end of our passage here, uh, verse 14, I hope to see you face to face. We'll talk soon. Peace to you. The friends here send their greeting. Greet the friends there by name. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? Greet them by name. Now, I know it's hard. All right, believe me, nobody in this room knows more how hard it is to remember everybody's name. That's totally a difficult cross that I bear. Um, But that's no excuse for you not to try. I know there's folks in here who are like, geez, I've been going to the same church with them for four years. I don't even know their name. Yeah, that's good. Get to know their name. Because a disciple loves you personally. Because, you know, Making your way in the world today takes everything you got. <laughs> i got to look down and find the lyrics to that again. Taking a break from all your worries sure would help a lot, right? Wouldn't you like to get away? And sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. And they're always glad that you came. Sometimes you want to be where you can see troubles are all the same. Sometimes you want to be where everybody knows your I just dated myself a little bit there, right? Um, That's from Cheers, in case you didn't know. Um, What's being contrasted here, though? A point that comes from the Word of God that the world understands. If they're not going to find community here, do you know where they're going to find it? Around a bar stool. And they got it right. Because the troubles of this life are great. Jesus promised you're going to have them. He has created a place where you can come and you can see the burdens that I carry are not just unique to me. They're shared. I look around and I see we're all working through this together. And that the people here, when I walk in the door, they're glad to see me. And they know my name. I know we could do a better job on that. This one is the worst of all. The question, I am connected to a community of Christians. Look, look at, the, look at the, uh, th- this of every question in the book. This one has the greatest difference disparaging between those who stick around in church and those who say, I've had enough. That they feel like they're connected in church. I want us to look in our Bibles at a passage as, we, as we're going to wrap things up here. Um, turn with me to the book of Romans. Uh, this is it's not a sermon out of Romans, but it's something that's worth a little bit of our time to evaluate as we look at this, uh, this final point here that a disciple is someone who knows your name. Romans chapter 16, if you're willing to turn with me. I'm going to read for you what Paul says here uh, at the very end of one of his most important letters, the longest of the letters that he's written. Listen to those things that Paul here is prioritizing as he's seeking to encourage the church in Rome. He says in verse 1, I commend you to our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Centria. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way 
worthy of the saints, and to give her any help that she may need from you. For she's been a great help to many people, including me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets in their house. Greet my dear friend Eponidas, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Adronicus and Junius, my relatives, who have been in prison with me. They're outstanding among the apostles. And they were in Christ before I was. Greet Amphiletus, whom I love in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stychus. Greet Apelles, tested and approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my relative. Greet those in the household of Nisissus who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Perseus, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, watch this one now, who has been a mother to me also. Greet Asyncricus, Philegion, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers with them. Greet Philogius, Junius, Nereus, I'm getting that one wrong, and his sister, and all, and Olympus, and all the saints with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches in Christ send their greetings. What's Paul doing here? He totally could have just said verse 16, right? He could have ended his letter. Hey, say sup to everybody in Segola for me, would you? But you know what he does? He lists them by name. And after each one, it's just that element of, oh, this is what they mean to me in my life. Now, we're going to move on. But before we do, I want you to look down just a couple verses uh, later. Uh, Look with me in verse 21, because he has some more names here. Timothy, my fellow worker, sends his greetings to you. So do Lucius, Jason, uh, uh, Sosipater, my relatives. I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Look at verse 23. What name do you see there? Oh, what, what do we discover over in 3 John? John's writing to a man named Gaius. Now, I'd love it if this was the same dude, but it's not. <laughs> this, <laughs> Gaius is a name like our world today, like Bob. So... There were a bunch of Gaiuses, just like we have a bunch of Bobs today. But um, how cool is that? That here, the thing that matters most is that we greet them by name. Now, I want you to see here the bow that ties this together, because all of these things are true, right? But none of them mean a hill of beans unless we know what it is we're united around. And so if you're still in Romans, just go down another path. Oh, we, I forgot Erastus here, who's the city director of public works. And Quartus sends you greetings. But verse 25, look what Paul says. Now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and by the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now has been revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all nations might believe and obey him. To the only wise God be glory forever, through Christ Jesus. Amen. The names are important, but the names only find their importance because together we have been redeemed by Christ. Amen? Amen. That is the reason 
why we need relational investment. It's not like you're going to Walmart or the YMCA and trying to make a new community of friends there. You share something with the people sitting across from you that is so precious and unique. You share a rebirth and a faith, a hope that the world doesn't know. And that is only found because of your ability to receive forgiveness. And that truth comes from the gospel. This passage from 1 John, John says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And and so what do we do then? And so we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Do you see the family in there? Brothers and sisters? Well, here's what I want to suggest we do with this. Another, Another sentence for application. Number one is this, be intentional. Uh, John was intentional to write to Gaius and encourage Gaius. He's intentional to now go visit Gaius, to speak truth and encouragement into his life and to be invested in what he's doing. You have to be intentional to do this. It won't happen by accident. You you actually have to write down someone's name. Otherwise, you're going to forget. You actually have to sit at your desk and and write the card to them. Otherwise, you're not going to find time to do it. We have to learn to be intentional. And this is how I would ask the question. Just answer this yourself. Do you help others feel like they belong? I was talking with another pastor um, of a church in Dickinson County. And he said that there were uh, some folks that were visiting his church. And uh, he knew them. But then after three Sundays, they didn't come back. Well, he, he knew them. And so he picked up the phone and said, hey, we haven't seen you in a couple Sundays. And they said, yeah, um, you know, we came for three weeks. Nobody ever welcomed us. N- nobody ever shook our hands, gave us a hug, asked us to stick around. We were able to come in and leave. And that was it. When I was a pastor in Dallas, uh, the, the church, this is, I'm, this is really fun right now. I'm kind of giving you a little insight here. The, the church in Dallas had these little secret agents in the church. <laughs> And the secret agent, these weren't people doing children's sermons, right? The secret agents were not people who were coming up to do readings. Do you know what their ministry was? Their ministry was every Sunday, see if they could find whoever the visitor was. And before the service was over, catch them and see if they could take them out to lunch. I got to be the recipient of that assassination one time when I came and sat there and they sniped me. Um, And, you know, I felt so loved. I really did. I felt so welcome because here was a church that was intentional about making sure that when I came and visited, I felt like I belonged. You know, it'd be real easy to do after the service would be to tell the kids, hey, quit running around. You're making too much racket. You're better, best seen and not heard. That'd be easy to do. But what do you think that instills in the heart of a child when they come to church? I don't really belong here. This place really isn't for me. Now, we want to be careful. We don't want kids banging into each other or getting hurt, right? So all of us are on board and vigilant with that. But how important is it that we make sure we're making an effort to help people know you belong. The church is a place you belong. And now, our world today is very confused with sin. We've taken many issues and we have made them just fine and even championed them. But let me ask you this. Do you have sin? What if everybody walking through the door today, we just, as you walked in, got a name tag and said, welcome. Now, what sin do you have uh, that we can put right on your? And we all just walked around with whatever it is we're in rebellion to God. None of us deserve this. 
None of us have a right to be here apart from the blood of Jesus Christ. We need to let people know they're welcome. We're not going to say that sin is acceptable, just like I'm not going to let you say my struggles in sin is acceptable. We're going to hold one another accountable, but we're going to let you know that you are welcome. We are glad that you are here. You belong here because we are together recovering in Christ. All right, next, uh, you need to be intentional to do the work because it takes work. It takes effort to belong to a family. It's easy to punt. It's easy to tap out. That's easy. People do that all the time. You know what's hard? It's to love. That's hard. To stick it out. That's what's hard. This is the question I would ask. How devoted are you to the person who's sitting across from you? You know, th- This is where being a member really matters. Now, I'm not a big fan of membership because I think the Bible defines it differently than we do. But do you know one thing membership does usually allow is to say, hey, I'm with you. I'm willing to fight for you. I'm not just here as a fair weather attender uh, Christian. Like, it's not just when the sun is shining. I'm, I'm willing to fight for you. My, my closest friend, a guy I went to seminary with, he and I really bucked heads uh, one time. And he thought it should go this way, and I thought this way, and I kind of won out. So I sort of got my way, and he was just miffed over that. And I felt like, yeah, there's a rift now in our relationship. But I love this guy. So I went over to his apartment. Hey, man, uh, what do you want? Can I come in? Hey, I just want to apologize. I just want you to know if there's anything that I did or, did or said that offended you, as much as I can own it, I ask your forgiveness. Yeah, we're fine. Whatever, whatever. I can, see, I can see that you're not uh, happy. I can, I can see that we got this between us. Whatever. All right, listen. This is my words. I said, I'm married to you. And he went like this. And I said, not in a weird way, but I'm married to you that I'm in this with you. All right? So I'm going to give you some time. I'm going to leave. But I just want you to know I'm there for you. All right? So I left. I go up to the apartment doing some laundry. It was about 15 minutes later and the big heavy laundry door opens and you know who it is? It's my buddy. He walks in. He says, we're cool. It's all right. This takes work, guys. This takes effort. How devoted are you? How committed are you to the person sitting across from you? Last one, uh, be intentional to do the work of relational investment. Now this one, none of y'all going to like Here's the question. Who is your mentor? Who are you mentoring? Paul had a Timothy. Timothy had a church. Church had a Timothy and Timothy had a Paul. There's there's always intergenerational investment that is necessary within the church. Here's the questions they asked. I, I meet regularly with someone who's a mentor to me. Let's see how we do on that. Pretty bad. Even in the church, we're doing pretty bad. Or this question, I meet regularly with someone whom I mentor. Guess what? Even worse. Now, part of this is because we have artificially tried to impose these relationships upon us. Hey, you don't need to work so hard. You just need to be a friend. That's it. You just need to be a friend. Imagine you could thank somebody for being a friend. Travel down the road and back again. (laughs) Your heart is true. You're a pal and a confidant. Did did, did TV in the 90s get it right or what? Right? 
Or is that the 80s? That's the 80s. A TV in the 80s. The 90s already messed it up, right? That's Golden Girls for anyone who didn't catch that one, right? But that's all this means, that you're willing to be a friend, to be a shoulder to cry on. Um, I, want, I want to preach a whole other 30 minutes just on mentoring, but just real quickly, it gives you three perspectives. It allows you to look back from the past with reflection because a mentor helps you see things with clarity that happened to you in the past. It helps you with present selection so that you know how to make good decisions right now and it helps you envision the future. If you have somebody in your life that you can meet with, these three aspects of our existence, making sense of the past, making good decisions for the present, and forming goals in the future will all be helped by having someone in your life that you, can re- that you can relate to and then someone you are pouring your life into. So that's the question. Who are you mentoring? Here's what I want to do as we wrap up. Hopefully in your bulletin this morning you got some sermon notes. Please take those out real quick. I got three questions and here's what I want to do. I would like you to grade yourself this morning. So you will see on the very bottom of the sermon notes a continuum from one to five. One being the worst. Five being the best. And I want you to just answer these questions by circling or put a little X, just wherever you would think you'd fall to give yourself a grade. Number one, I'm confident in my relationships at church. How would you score yourself on that? As you, as you look around, as you walk into this building, is there insecurities there? Is there avoidance there? Is there fear? Is there unforgiveness there? Number two, I feel connected to people of all ages in my church. Hopefully everyone's going to have a slightly different take on that. How do I relate with those little ankle biter kids or the, or, or the, you know, the high school, whatever it might be, right? How, how do you feel connected to them? And thirdly, how would you grade yourself? I am mentoring, I'm mentored by someone else and I mentor someone younger. Again, not in a way that has, that's hyper formulaic. That's actually not very good, by the way. If you're mentored by somebody and they're treating you like a psychiatrist, like, all right, you have 30 minutes, go. That's not good. But is there someone in your life that you could turn to? And then are you actively trying to help someone else in your life? By the way, it doesn't always have to be older and younger. You can you be an older person being mentored by someone younger, and you can be uh, building up somebody who is older than you as well. But go ahead and, uh, and grade yourself on that. And here's where I want to... These are also in your notes, but this is what I want to encourage you. As you look to, to where you are lowest, I hope there ain't nobody here that just put five across the board. Come see me after class if you did that. <laughs> um, Somewhere, somewhere you're, you're a little lower than the others. And so if it's the first one, if it's, if it's confident relationships, you need to work on being more intentional. You need to break out of that shell a little bit more. Give someone a hug, shake someone's hand, ask somebody their name. Um, if you struggle with uh, feeling connected to people of all ages, it's because you have struggled with a little bit of intimacy. And you're a little afraid to, to break out and to trust someone else. So that's where I would encourage you to work. Or if you don't have any mentoring going on in your life at all, there's no investment. And we know that we get a return for our investment. So this is where I would encourage you to look. This is not about being best friends with everyone. You don't need to be best friends, BFFs with everyone in church, but you need to be willing to fight for the person across from you. This is not about a feel-good club, right? This is not church just as, oh, we just love each other, kumbaya all the time. 
But it's about us being honest as we come in to help one another recover. This is like recovery for sinners in church. And it's not about being like a spiritual leader. It's about being a friend. And sometimes a friend is the best kind of spiritual leader you can have. Amen.